I'm Steve Vibronics, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and rhythm. Episode number 13. Welcome to the 13th Life in Dub podcast. I hope you're all okay out there and seeing the lockdown loosen and some small freedoms returning. I hope you're all applying the pressure wherever you can to support the Black Lives Matter movement and most importantly, educating the vast majority of people who are still ignorant to the institutional racism that stubbornly remains here in society. An unfair and unjust bias that never went away. I hope in some small way this podcast helps people understand more about the struggles that are at the heart of Black Lives Matter. Don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, the best way is to order one of the t-shirts, I Live My Life in Dub. There's a link in the show notes, or you can just go to the website, lifeindub.com, and follow through to Bandcamp. This week, I want to talk about Roots Reggae, or more accurately, when is reggae not Roots? This last week, I've been working on my mixes for the Stepping Into Mexico album. It's a great project that features loads of Mexican vocalists and instrumentalists, and is meant to celebrate the strong link Vibronix has with the Mexico dub scene. You see, for me, as long as the bass and the drums, the foundation rhythm of the track is still Roots Reggae style, then vocals and instruments and other bits that we add to the mix are fair game. And that's what I've always wanted to do with Vibronix music. Keep it as 100% Roots dub reggae, but try and push a few boundaries by bringing in some different elements. I think once you start changing the way the drums and the bass play, then it becomes a different genre, which is fine, I've got no problem with that, it's just not what I want to do. I want to keep it Roots dub reggae style. And there's nothing new here. A great example of this has to be the 1992 album Twinkle in a Polish Style, where the Twinkle Brothers worked with a Polish folk group and managed to make an album that has huge Polish vibes, but it's still a true Roots reggae album, as you'd expect from the Twinkle Brothers. I'd be interested to know what you listeners think about these kind of collaborations that push on the edges of Roots reggae dub music. So if you feel like it, just drop me a message. This week, my guest is Dougie Wardrop from Conscious Sounds, Bush Chemist, Century, so many projects that are part of the foundation of UK dub and reggae. Dougie is a highly talented and prolific music producer whose passion for making music remains as strong as it did when he started way back in the 1980s. Dougie is a lifelong rebel with a fascinating history and the first person on the podcast to say bollocks to the government. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. Well, Dougie Wardrop, Welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Hi. All right, Steve. <laughs> so here we are. I mean, this podcast will go out in a few weeks or whatever. Um, right now, everyone's in isolation. So you're down in London or whatever, and I'm up in Leicester, and it's quite a crazy situation. Very crazy. Unbelievable, to be honest. Like a zombie movie. Apocalyptic movie. That's it. And who knows how it will be by the time people actually hear this podcast. Well. Crazy stuff. But what, what I want to do is I'm asking everybody at the beginning of the interview um, the same question, which a lot of people are familiar with now. So, But the question I'm asking is, like, can you think of a track where it had kind of such an influence on you that it really made you change direction or really kind of move things on for you or really kind of change things? It's like, can you name a track like that at all? I can name a track. It's called uh, The River, and it's by Zapal. That track had a, a massive influence on me in terms of listening to dubbing and craziness and phases and just madness. You know what I mean? That tune there, The, the River by Zapal. Definitely had a major effect. When, when did you come across that tune? Then? To be honest with you, I come across that probably in, in the mid-'80s when we was all collecting revival music, you know? When everybody, there was a big scene around London and Camden that people was collecting this revival like from the 70s all Augustus Pablos and Lee Perry's the King Tubbies that, that kind of faded out but there's still a lot of people that wanted to listen to it and the river was one of them really really hard to get tunes you just could not get it anywhere for love nor money you know it wasn't like it is now with a YouTube you can go on a YouTube and type in any tune you want this tune was mega 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 rare and what was it about that particular tune that really kind of made a mark? It's just the mixing. It's like, if you if you could describe taking an attic trip in reggae, that tune is it. If you like Phasers and Lee Perry, this is the ultimate Phaser Lee Perry tune ever made, in my opinion. There's not one better. If you were like Phases and weird sounds and textures, this tune is mad. And I guess by then you're talking mid-80s, so you were already 
into making music and whatever? I mean, if we go back a bit further. No, then... I wasn't making music then. Basically, in the mid-80s, I used to have a, sh- a little record store, me and a guy called Bags, in Camden Town, Camden Lock Market. It's called a Dub Shack. And we used to sell lots of, basically, revival stuff that we could get hold of, like old stuff. I remember visiting it in the 90s, actually, because it was still going then, wasn't it? It was going up until late 90s when, they, when it started getting ridiculous. Because Camden and them days used to be a market that you went to because it was totally different from all the other markets. You know, it was like antiques and odds and sods and loads of different things you'd never see in a normal market. But then it sort of gradually went into our other markets went and turned into Oxford Street, basically. It was just like a tourist attraction. And they really didn't like us playing dub music, to be honest. Because we used to be quite loud. And, yeah, and you're from London originally? I was born in Hackney, and I still live in Hackney. And what what about sort of early musical kind of things? I mean, when when did it start to make a sort of link with you? When did it start to be important to you? Going or? to school. Going to school. Well, I, my next-door neighbours in the flats I used to live in, were they, they, they were from Jamaica. And I used to know he's the son of, of the people, of people next door. And I used to go around his ass. And he, he used to play records, old Sky records and stuff like that. So that's my real first introduction to reggae, really, was because I lived in Hackney. So you were going and to school? In Hackney, where I lived with, with people from... Yeah, like, going to school. Yeah. In school, they used to have a tuck break. And they, kids used to have melodicas and try to emulate Gustav Pablo. And this was like happening at school? Yeah, in school. In my school, everything was... Reggae was the number one king music. You know what I mean? All the young black people that I grew up with always used to look to Jamaica as their musical influence because obviously their mum and dad come from Jamaica. You know, then you had Bob Marley busting it big and it was just, reggae was everywhere. I, had to, I walked like past three record shops on the way to school, reggae record shops. And when did you start to get interested in it yourself and start to kind of suss out who artists were and you know that point where you get kind of deeper into it I mean when, when did you start to kind of realise it was really for you probably when I was I don't know in my teenage years like 15 16 17 started smoking uh, the old wacky backy <laughs> and getting into dub music and listening to stuff and that, if you like smoking and listen to dub with your headphones it's fantastic sometimes you have to do it for late at night in your house you couldn't put the hi-fi on because your mum would go bananas my mum used to turn the power off in the whole house I used to live up at the top of the house and have my little stereo in there and just play loud music, whether it be punk music or a bit of reggae. And she used to just turn the power off, flick the fuse on me. <laughs> and you talk about punk music, so you, were you interested in punk as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I just love music in general, but I always liked punk, and I always liked the root side of, of, of the reggae because it's basically anti-establishment. It's like rebel you know? music, isn't it? Yeah, it wasn't just music saying, oh, I love you, baby, and all that crap you get on top of the pops like Duran Duran and all that kind of stuff you know and Elton John I could never stand that that music I always like music that's added some sort of message you know what I mean whether it be bollocks to the government or Mashdown Babylon it was always it was kind of the same thing to me you know it's like a rebellious as you say rebel music and were you, were you like rebellious when you were young I mean what, do you know why it was that that rebel thing was important to you I suppose it was a bit of a rebel I mean we all are when we teenagers I mean, it was all punk rockers, we was mods, we were skinheads, we was all these things. And when you check out the original skinhead stuff, that was all really reggae music. You know, it was Prince Buster, Trojan, Tighten Up, all that kind of stuff. You know, Judge Dredd. Remember Judge Dredd? <laughs> you know, we used, to, we used to like all that stuff, you know. What about like playing music? Because that's kind of what most people think of you as a, as a musician and a producer and you know where, when did you start I started I started dabbling with the guitar when I was in my teenage years like 15 16 something like that when, you know when punk first dropped everyone said you, anyone can do it everyone can pick up a guitar and play three chords and I remember asking my mum to get me a guitar and I didn't have a clue what to do I didn't even know how to tune the strings or anything like that but as you go along you get to learn it and know a few chords and that was it really that's my real first musical uh, adventure because I, I remember getting a guitar and like you say it's like it looks really cool and then you pick it up and you just don't know what to do with it and you have to learn the whole thing exactly you can't just plug it in first you have to learn how to tune it and it was like oh, how'd you do that and I didn't have digital tuners them days they used to have a little whistle remember the whistle yeah yeah yeah, yeah. used to go that's E I thought, what, what happened it, 
just to get my head around tuning it took, took me ages. But they, they teach you the kind of essence of like, this is what a note is, this is what pitch is. I think those kind of, when you struggle through it yourself to begin with, that's kind of, you're, you're actually learning a lot more than you think. No, I agree, definitely. It's a bit like mixing as well. I mean, when I, when I first really started to get in, in, into production, it was because I went around Nick Manassas' house. And this is like about 87, 88. And we went into, he used to live in Dalston, which wasn't too far from where I lived. A friend of mine called Postman Tony, who was a big shuckerite and used to go to dances and collect music. He knew Nick and he took me around there and he showed me this little studio in his bedroom, a little four track, you know, a little drum machine, one keyboard, a four track, a MIDI verb and an and a echo chamber. And I'd already heard the Sound Duration LP before that and I was pretty influenced by that because I thought that sounded fantastic. It, it still does. And that, that came on my playlist like yesterday, the Sound Duration oh, It's a great LP. And I and I hadn't heard it for so. It was one of kind of one of the lesser known tracks off it, and I thought yeah. it sounded like a new tune. And then I kind of oh, it was a sound duration. I can't believe it. It's so old. It sound it still sounds fresh. It does sound. It, it, the drums sound a bit dated though. I can't remember what drum machine used there. It was one of them really old ones. It had like four sounds in it. You know what I mean? The high sound like dustbin lids. But going back to like. Um, you know, before you met Nick and got involved in that. I mean, what, were you going to dances and stuff in London? I used to go dances all the time when I was a kid. If you grew up in Hackney, you could not get away from it. My my friend Wendell, his name was, was like one of my best mates. His his brother had like sound systems that he used to play at. So the sound system used to be in his basement. So we used to go around his ass and he used to play the sound on his basement. He used to have a little blues dance in there as well where you go in there, pay like 20 pence to get in or something like that and you could stay there all night listening to the music. Crazy. What were the dances like? So maybe some of the bigger ones that you went to. I mean, what what kind of? Well, I, didn't, I didn't really go to some of the bigger ones because for a white person it was very scary. You know what I mean? You didn't see white people in the dances in them days. You know, to go to like Dan Phoebe's or someone like a Shaka to me that was like flipping it. It's like, mate, that's super scary. And you'd have to go with somebody else as well. You know what I mean? Preferably another black person. It just wasn't happening really in them days. Because that's the thing that's hard to kind of imagine now is like how... I used to look at it like this way. It's just like taking a black person to a football with me. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because that was the same scenario for a black person. To go to football matches, you didn't really see many black people there. And sometimes you used to get abused, you know what I mean? Well, black, this and... and, You know, so it it was kind of the same for me going into into the dances. Kind of scary, you know what I mean? But you, you did go to Phoebe's at some point and hear Shaka then? No, I remember I was only about 15, 16 around that times in the late 70s. So you have to be 18 to get in as well. But I kind of went later on when I got a bit older and a bit wiser. But we used to like all sound systems. We used to like Saxon as well. Saxon at the time was killing it. Saxon, Unity, you know, the dance all kind of stuff. The Studio One. I used to love all that stuff as well. And what, what do you remember about going to dances back then? It's kind of, because obviously it's different times, different places and... Well, again, come from my perspective, I had to be very humble. I would go there, I would stand in the corner, you know what I mean, and just, and not really say much because I kind of felt out of place. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, like being a guest. Yeah, kind of thing, yeah, because you remember, you're coming from a white perspective, I'm going to a, a, pl- a place that's really, it's mostly black people, it's their culture, it's their music. I'm just kind of like, I guess you say a guest in that. So I have to be very humble. You know what I mean? Don't be that drunk and just act like an idiot or anything like that, you know, kind of thing. Just be humble and just take it all in. And what 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 kind of what kind of vibe was going on at those dances? I mean, it's again it's very different to the things happening these days. Oh, it's much different, definitely. Well it was more black orientated. I mean it may be funny, but most people go reggae dances or dub dances in London now are mainly white people. You know, so it's totally changed. Totally and utterly changed. When I mean, you talked about Nick Manassa and kind of going to his studio, but had you had you started to experiment with playing reggae music before you kind of hooked up? Not, not, not at all. I mean, the first the first time I like I said I went around Nick's, I saw him doing it, and I thought it doesn't look that hard because he had a little sequencer. You know what I mean? And so, and then I started. I didn't want to harass Nick too much. So I got on a friend named Nigel, Nigel Lake. He was a proper musician. He could play like bass, he could play guitar, he could play anything. So I used to get him to help, help me build rhythms. I used to try and program a drum machine. You know, I remember the first person to, to show me how to program a drum machine was a guy called uh, Gil. 
who works for Riz Records, who was Molasses friend. And he also works now for uh, Tough Scout. You know Tough Scout? Yeah, yeah, Wicked Productions. There's a guy called Gil who makes all the rhythm tracks. He used to work with Nick back in the day. He's a very talented guy. I think he works with a lot of pop artists as well, but he was on the keyboards or drum machines. He was, he was the bollocks. And I remember him showing me, I had at least his HR16, and I'll play a, a reggae track and say, how do I get the drums like that on here? And he used to show me, and that's basically how I started. Because in, in those days, it's like, you know, now everyone pretty much has got some kind of smartphone or something and has got used to dealing with technology somehow. But back then, unless you were like a sort of computer geek, you wouldn't have anything to do with technology. So it was no. like, was that, was that like the... I mean, had had you had any experience using? No, none, none at all. It was like a, it was like I had this drum machine that I bought, and really I didn't know what to use, how to do it. The, things like quantize and all that. I said, "What's quantize? What does that mean?" I didn't even understand. You know what I mean? Like the bars, the four four. Is it? You know, all these things. I never had a clue what I was doing. But I, I just listened to records and try and emulate what I heard, and that's where I first started. And once I got my head around that, you know, then it started to get. Get better. Even the manuals was like they, they never made any sense to me. Well, basically because it's written by someone in Japan, but then translated into English. You know, what I mean, that's where you couldn't really. I only, I only really looked at manuals when I, I was stuck. You know, what I mean, back in them days, we used to record the, the the drum machine onto the four track, and then we would play the keyboards and everything live to the drum machine on the tape. So the drum machine would be the backing, and everything was played along to it. There was no. That's before even using an Atari or an MPC or something. Yeah, I, exactly, yeah. That was it. I had a drum machine, I'd knock a drum pattern up, and I used to have to make different patterns, one with a roll on it, one for an intro, etc., etc., etc. Record about three and a half minutes onto the cassette, and then that was it. Play the bass line to it, and then put a piano chop on it, and you have one more track maybe for a vocal or a lead instrument. And that was it, really. So from these like humble starts, then, I mean, were you thinking about having your own studio and your own setup? Did a sort of light go off? I was addicted to studios. I wanted to go around Nick's house every day of the week. I used to drive him bananas. I used to phone him up at 11 o'clock in the morning. Are you up yet, Nick? And he's going, what are you phoning me for? No, not really. And so what happened was, about maybe a year or two after I started meeting and working with him, he went and bought an 8-track. He bought all this new equipment and all the old equipment was just sitting there. So I said to him, look, I'll give you like, let me buy the four track off you. And basically I said, he sold me his four track and that, that was it. I had my own studio from that point. That's about 1991, something like that. That's it. Cause in, in, in those days, it's like, if you're lucky enough to have a four track, you've got something you can kind of mix on, kind of record on, but then, but then you need stuff to record and to mix and you just need to, find singers and synthesizers and start adding to it all, I guess. Do you know Ting, Roots Ting? Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to go around his ass and we used, we used to be in the same kind of, uh, into the same things, the revival stuff, going to Manassa, buying old reggae stuff. And he, he had this echo chamber, which is a cool guest DD 3000. And I never had an echo chamber, a dedicated one anyway. And I had this preamp, old Jartubby's preamp, which I got from, believe it or not, King General, like he gave it to me, I don't know, a couple of years previously. And I swapped the, the preamp for the echo chamber with Ting. And I still got that same echo chamber to this day in my studio. And, I've, and it's never broke down. And that's like 20 something years ago. And at that sort of time, I mean, were you inspired? Because obviously you're talking about some digital equipment and this is the beginning, the very beginning of the 90s. So were, were you inspired by any of the kind of digital stuff that was around at the Not time? Not really, because it, at that time it wasn't coming out. I'm talking about when I first started it was like 1988 89 so all the exterminator didn't exist then you know you had sort of like Booger Banton was the favourite at the time with with a bogle and all that kind of music so that was another thing that made me want to do music as well because we couldn't buy no more music from Jamaica really you know Pablo was still doing a few bits and pieces with Yami Bolo and White Mice and Junior Delgado but there was no real big a lot of music coming from Jamaica that we liked, that we could play. Because in, in those times, like the stuff that, obviously, your music had yet to come out and, you know, Nick had hardly put anything out and maybe Alfred Amiga had only just started. It's kind of... I think, I, I think to be honest with you, I think the first two that was really started, it was really was Russ and Nick. 
Russ was like with Shaka, and Nick really had his own sound system, and and his music was I don't know I think a bit more clearer than Russ's are more raw because I think he had because I think Nick had better equipment and when he actually recorded the Sound Direction LP he actually went to a proper studio he didn't do it on his four track you see what I mean he went to a studio paid money and had it done like semi professionally you know that's why the LP sounds if you listen to it today this still sounds pretty good good quality because he he went to like say he went, that wasn't done in his back room studio I think it was done somewhere else and what about your first release I mean what what, what was the first one you put out because I've got a whole load of your stuff from like way back the in the first day. one was was Stepping Time on a 7 inch yeah which again I just went around Nick's and he, he built up some drums in a drum machine and I started humming a bass line and he went let me see if I can copy it on the keyboard and that was it and because when you're doing music first you get all excited about your first couple of tracks you think they're the best tracks in the world but when you listen back to it now, it's not that not that great a track, I don't think, in my opinion. I wouldn't have put it out now if I'd have known what I know now, if you know what I mean. But when you're young, you're excited, you get excited about things. Definitely. And if you don't do it, then you're never going to do it. That's kind of... I have this thing of like thinking, oh, I put some stuff out for me like too early. It wasn't really ready. It wasn't good enough. But if I hadn't have done that, maybe I'd have never put anything out. And there's, sometimes you just got to let it go and do it. Yeah, well, that's, that's it. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but... And the funny thing was, when I pressed that record, I went to Dub Vendor in uh, uh, Labrador Grove, and I remember Dub Vendor John laughed at me, saying, what are you making Dub tunes for? Dub's finished 10 years ago. What are you making this stuff for? He, he couldn't believe I was making Dub tunes. That's so similar to, like, Keaty Root's story when, when he was on the podcast, just kind of, like, he wanted to make this Roots music, and so many people in the industry were like, no, forget it, what are you doing that for? That's finished, mate, all that. You're making Roots tunes, are you mad? They couldn't believe it, you know what I mean? But and the, and the ironic thing was, 10 years later, uh, Chris Lane and John phoned me up and asked me to do a double LP with them. So there you go. I had the last laugh. And even to this day, really, the only thing that keeps all them shops alive is the UK root stuff. Or the, I should say the EU root stuff now, which is coming, because like I say, it's coming from all over Europe now. And then moving forward a bit with like your career, it's kind of, because like... A, Talking about tunes is like that they're important. Like one that's important to me is is long time with, with King Jemry, King Jemrel. There's the century tune because I remember Abishan yeah. used to play it all the time up in Leicester. That's right. And I remember buying it off Barber, and it's slow, slow, heavy tune. But that's century. So what 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 was what was century, and what was your part in that? That was Nigel. Basically, that was Nigel. I made the drums for that track, and Nigel played all the music. A guy called Nigel Lake. And Century, the name, came from an old Tapazuki record called Century by Knowledge. And if you get the original pressing on it, Century's spelt wrong. It's spelt C-E-N-T-R-Y. And obviously that's not how you spell Century. Yeah, and that's where the name came from. I just thought, because that was a rare tune. And I, you know, I used to love that tune, Century. And I thought, yeah, I'll use that name, Century. And I, would, I wanted to be like, like, have a name like Scientist or King Tubbies. You know what I mean? So I called it Century. And did you have your own studio by then? Yeah, I had my own studio. I think Long Long Time was the first tune we'd done that we used an, an 8-track. Because you listen to the quality of that compared to, say, the Sun and Moon LP and a couple of others I put out, the Zion Garden, that one never sounded a bit more fatter. Because by that time, I'd bought a Fostex R8 and I bought a Sound Studio Master 16 into 4 into 2. And what was it like, like releasing music back then? Because obviously, I bought it at the dance from Barber in Leicester and I'd see it in a couple of the shops in London when I used to go to kind of on my record buying missions like on the bus or the train or whatever to London then it's like um, you know what, what what was it like putting a record out then I mean did, 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 that, did that record do well? Well it's kind of funny because the first tune I did the stepping time one I pressed a thousand copies I think I managed to shift about 350 of them and the rest of them I stored them in my wardrobe in my old flat and about three months later, I moved moved the house and I left the records in the wardrobe. I forgot all about them. And when I went back about a month later to get the records, the guy said he threw them in a bin. So somewhere online, 700 copies of that got chucked away. But yeah, we never made no money. And, and basically, you literally have to walk around every record shop in London. I had to go to Regal Records, M&D Records, Dub Vendor, Body Music, Daddy Calls, and say to him, look, here's my new tune. Can you take some copies? And they would say, give us 15, 
on SOR, which means sale and return. And then you went back two weeks later and said, did you sell them? And they said, oh, yeah, I sold two here. It's four quid or whatever. You see what I mean? That's exactly how it used to work. And you had places like Fat Shadow and Jetstar was a like, main distributor and they would take like a box of each and that was it, really. It was very hard work. And you were selling them on your stall, I guess, as well, your, the, the Dub Shack. Yeah, I sold a few copies on the stall, but it's only a certain amount you can sell with your own tune. Yeah, things back then were dealing with shops and, like you say, going around and... It was, and, and the thing was, the music wasn't even fa- in fashionable either. So the people in the shops didn't even really want to take it. They was looking, what, Dub? You're too late. It's like 20 years old. They used to laugh at you, mate, trust me. There was, remember, there was no scene other than the fact that you had Manasseh. We used to play it every now and again. Shaka was still going. But that was it, really. You know what I mean? This is before ABBA started and before Iration. Iration and ABBA could really come back 1990. You know what I mean? Sort of thing. So they was just starting. You know, I used to go and see Joe in, and there was only two people there, and that was me and Joe Warrior, and maybe Barber, someone like that, you know? Uh, and then moving on in kind of the music I know of you, then is, is like, I think of Bush Chemists as well, is like that, that's an, a separate project from Century, I guess. That's a whole new thing. Well, that, was, that came about because, again, that was from selling records. There was to be a record shop in Stroud Green Road by, run by a guy called Pepe, Youth Sound Records. And he used to sell a lot of like, in them days, he used to sell a lot of rare groove and a little bit of reggae. And Freeman used to work in a record shop. This is Culture Freeman. Yeah, Culture Freeman. I walked in there one day, selling me a tune. I got to know Freeman. And one day he said to me, I've got this friend of mine, his name is Chaz. He plays keyboards. Would you be up for doing some tracks? I said, yeah, why not? I'll give it a blast, you know what I mean? And, and that's how it started. And Freeman was the actual guy who came up with the name Bush Chemist. That's when it really started to change because by that time I got my foot in the door of a company called SRD, Southern Record Distribution, and they would do all the indie stuff. And they actually started taking a bit of notice of the dub stuff. Okay, well, they set up Dubhead later on, didn't they? It was a guy called Nick Head who, was, who used to work for SRD, and like you say, he was looking for the next best thing because he'd just done Jungle. Jungle would just come out about two years previously and had really peaked, but was going down a bit now. And he was trying to look for the newest thing that he could sell. And he thought Dub was that. And that was how Dubhead was born, really. And then did you notice things like kind of improving and there being a more interest in what you were doing then? Not in England, but definitely abroad. Because Dubhead, when they started putting out his LPs, then they started telling us, look, you've got to go and do some tours. I said, tours? What do you mean tours? He goes, you know, you've got to go on stage and all this. And I thought, yeah, I thought, I thought he was joking, to be honest. So you'd, you'd not been playing out at that point then? No, I only ever played out once before, but I used to have my record store and I used to have a little sound system on my record store, so I knew how to play music and all that. But we never, I'd never been on a stage before or anything like that, no. And in them days, it wasn't sound systems, it was like stage shows because you, you play in little clubs all around France. Yeah, it was, that was, must be about 1994, 95, something like that. Well, that's definitely something I want to kind of pick up on in a bit. That's in my list of things to kind of mention because it's like the whole kind of early days of France. It's like unimaginable times now. But whilst you're talking about like music, and we'll come to that, but back, back to that in a second, but just whilst we're talking about sort of music and production and stuff, is um, obviously, you know, Bush Chemist is starting to, you know, things are starting to move and wheels are starting to turn. And then... At some point, you started to really start to produce and mix music for other people. And I guess for me, and for a lot of people, the big example of that is is doing this stuff for Jar Warrior. Well, Jar Warrior, he, he basically used to have a sound system back in the day. And he used to play with uh, Manasseh as well. I used to see him in Muswell Hill, uh, you know, playing these like a sound clash, Manasseh versus Jar Warrior. And he heard the, the couple of first couple of tunes I put out, like Step in Time and Can't Touch Jar. And he just he just come down to the store one day on a Sunday afternoon and said, look, my name's Joel Warrior, et cetera, et cetera, and I'd like to make some tunes for you. I said, okay, wicked. And that was it, really. That's how it started. Because he seemed to, like, he, he brought, once you'd got things up and running, then he, he was bringing in, like, Peter Broggs and Prince Allah, and, like, he, he seemed to really go out there and find these, like, amazing legends. No, he, he, he actually went for it. He actually went for it, you know, he, he put the money where his mouth is and not only did he get the old legends, he got the new guards as well. Remember, he, was, he, was, he got Luton Fire. He also got Jar Mason, you know what I mean? Which is, in them days was a big thing because those, them new style of Jamaican DJs, 
wasn't really doing no UK dub or any kind of root stuff at all like that. So that was kind of a milestone as well, you know. And how was it working with some of those singers? Because you must have really been, you know, recording a lot of, well, you, you, you were recording a lot of, lot of legends. Yeah, it was, it was kind of scary, to be honest, because you also got to remember, we was recording everything onto tape. Uh, there was no computers in to record, like, record onto, so if you made a mistake and you press record, you couldn't get it back. There's no undo button. So yeah, it was kind of scary. I mean, you got Prince Adam in the studio singing a song, and you press you press record, and you you rub something out by mistake. You can't get it back. So it was kind of scary, but at the same time, it was a big learning lesson for me. You know, having to deal with people because the music is not only about making music. You have to have to deal with singers and studios. Even even if you're lucky enough to have a big room, which most studios haven't, you're stuck in a fairly small room with people who are, you know artists are being creative they're like they're kind of exposing their emotions and whatever and it's kind of it's quite an intense thing it can be very intense and some of the singers weren't even nice some of them were like yo yo you know what I mean like do this and that made it even worse you know it's, it, it, it was kind of scary sometimes the most scariest one I worked with was Junior Delgado I mean voicing him was like I was shitting myself my hands were trembling on the, on the record because he'd say to me drop it in there at that point and if you missed it, you know what I mean? I mean, these, these, these people, I grew up listening to their music. They're like icons, you know what I'm saying? And now they're in my studio. It's, it's, it, was, it, was, it was great, but it was scary. And they've got years of experience of working in bigger, more, dare I say it, more professional studios in Jamaica and stuff. Yeah, oh, definitely. Or oh, even cheaper ones. I mean, you check it out. Lee Perry's studio, really, when you look at the equipment he had, it was, it was pretty crap. He had an old sand track, sand craft board, and a four-track, what, a quarter-inch four-track? A little TIAC. You know, if you actually listen back to the recordings of, of the Black Art stuff, it's not, the production is not really that great. Because, of, I suppose, because of the limited equipment he had. But it still had a good vibe to it, you know? A classic vibe. So obviously, you know, you're, by now you're recording all these kind of, like, legendary sort of singers and, and, just, and the, the production seems to be getting fatter and involving more musicians and kind of... As, we, as you say, as we progressed, I went from literally... Being in my loft on an eight track, then I kind of left my loft and got a premises, and I bought another mixing desk. I bought a Sandtrax MRX, and I bought a E16 of Fostex, which was a half inch 16 track, which is probably just a bit better than the eight track quarter inch. But yeah, the quality was getting better. Not only that, the technology was getting better. But it's interesting you talk about the business side about opening a studio and moving from like your flat or whatever into premises. And it's like, because that's definitely something kind of next on my list that I wanted to talk to you about. Is like, how how did you turn it into a job? I just had to because I, I had nothing. I, I had, to be honest, look, when I left school, I had no qualifications. The only thing I was, I used to work in a wood yard before I made music. I used to work in a crane unloading lorries and things like that. I've had a million them kind of crappy jobs working on building sites, digging holes. I was never, a, I would say, good at school. I never got no exams. I left like basically when I was 15. So really music was like a, real, a really a good way out for me. You know what I mean? And the reason why I started getting my own premises, one, in them days in Hackney, property was cheap because no one wanted to live in Hackney. It was a shithole. You know what I mean? And basically two... I had the studio in my house for so long, it was driving me around a twist. I felt like I never left my house. You know, in the end, I used to get out of bed in the morning, go upstairs and go to the studio, but it used to drive me mad. Not being, Once you leave your house and go to work, it feels like you're going to work, if you know what I mean. And I think also when you're working with artists and bringing people in as well, there's something about going to the studio rather yeah. than like tiptoeing around someone's house. Yeah, exactly. It looks better, definitely. But for me, it was, it was part of the mental, mental thing. I couldn't stay in my house all day long. It would drive me mad. That's why right now this this lockdown thing is is quite straight, stressful in the head. No, true, true. But you must have been, you know, things must have been progressing to the point where you thought I'm going to rent a space and buy a bigger desk. And obviously there must have been some progress from that first seven inch. And this is like, you know, eight ten years later, I guess. This come about really through Dubbed because Dubbed really took us to places we never ever could have ever gone by ourselves. And I even say this today, I think Dubbin really is responsible for the UK's dub invasion to France, Germany, etc., all over Europe. Because at that point, I don't think many people was going out and doing what we was doing, doing stage shows. I mean, we used to go there for like two or three weeks, 
drive around in a van and play all these like little clubs. And maybe there was only 10 people there or five people. Were, you know what I mean? But that's definitely something that's kind of interesting to talk about because now, you know, we were both at Dub Camp last year and like, you know, Dub Camp's incredible. Thousands, I mean, tens of thousands, I don't know how many people are there, but thousands and thousands of people and pure sound systems. Um, and when we were there, I mean, I started touring a bit after you, but you were there in the sort of mid nineties or whatever. And you know, that, how, how was it there? What, what was it? What was it like in France in the mid nineties playing dub? Nobody knew what dub was. We were literally we had a guy called Bertram, a guy called Bertram from Easy Dub Ducasse. Before he done done the reggae dub stuff, he was doing rock stuff. So he knew all the places, all all these venues around France that he obviously he was contracted to supply acts for them them venues. You see what I mean? And I think he was subsidised by the government to put acts. So it didn't matter. If only 10 people turned up or 20, you still got paid. So we would play everywhere. All, all over France. We used to go for one from Paris, say Marseille, spend eight hours in a bus, go and play to 20 people, then go from back to Marseille, to Strasbourg, in some other pub or a little nightclub. And that's how it was. And really, people didn't really know, you know, about dub reggae at that time. I remember getting all the early tour dates through like fax. I had to go and find someone with a fax machine. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Now, we used, he used to just say to us, look, we've got two weeks in France. You just turn up in Calais. We used to drive our car to Calais and then sometimes we used to get a ferry across and park the car in France because the, the, it was free to park in, in a car park in Calais. But if you parked in Dover, you'd have to pay a bit of money, like 20 quid or something. But that was it. They would pick us up in a van in Calais and that was it. We just drive around France for like next five, six days, or depending on how many gigs we had. And how many sound systems were operating in France in those days? Not really many. You know, I remember the most Abu Bakr. He was the only guy who came to see us and knew who he was, and was buying our records, and said, "Oh." And that was a, that was when we did. We were supporting Lee Perry at the time because Lee Perry was do, doing some stuff with Mad Professor, and like we was like the support act for them. And I, at that gig, I think it was. Nance, someone like, hey, come backstage and talk to us. And we was really glad to meet someone who actually knew our music. And he was the first one, really. Because I, I was always, like, surprised. I'd never thought of music being anything outside of, like, hardly Leicester, but certainly UK. And then when going to France, and even though the scene was small, it made me think, well, maybe it can go further and get bigger and whatever. It was a real, it was an eye-opener yeah, for me. Yeah, it definitely was an eye-opener for us as well. But again, that's all down to Dubhead, really. I don't think without Dubhead, the dub thing wouldn't be so popular now in, in France. Those are the ones who really started this first seeds, I think. You need those kind of movers and shakers to kind of push things forward yeah. sometimes. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we never really made much money out of Dubhead. They kind of didn't skank us, but they didn't pay us really well. And to be honest, we didn't know what we was doing anyway. We was very naive. You know, I know that they was, I was making records... I was making records with right East Meets West, Century, Dub Specialist, Jungle Neck, anything anything they could sell. They used to say to me, "Make another LP and just change your name, just to sell it." You know what I mean? So it was it was crazy, really. And like sort of moving forward, going back to talking about music productions and things, is the like sort of I guess like mid two thousands or something. You came out with this kind of digital kind of thing. Um, got to be conscious and stuff like that. And then it seemed like, you know, obviously you were harking back to the old days, but it sounded really fresh and new and p people seemed to love it. So what, what what was all that about? Well, because I used to love them tunes like We Are Tough Scout, Nuff Tribulation, we know about, Carl Meeks, Tough Scout, you know what I mean? Danger, Carl Meeks. These are tunes that was coming out in, in the late 80s that was very digital, but they was played in minor keys. That was the key. If you had played, if it was in minor keys... It sounded wicked. Listen to He Was a Friend, King Kong. Do you know you must know that tune, don't it? Yeah, yeah, of course. And the thing about them tunes that really, really stand out to me was they wasn't trying to copy anything. I think with the UK dub stuff, we was just trying to copy Augustus Pablo, Lee Perry, all the classics, but doing it in a digital style with melodica. Where these guys, they wasn't trying to copy anything. They was making drum patterns that you could never ever play on a, if he was a real drummer. You see what I mean? But it was in minor keys, and obviously Shaka played them, and that was my big influence, and I loved that stuff. 
And that was the stuff that was inspiring you to do these new tunes or yeah. at the time. Yeah, it was, it was just something different, you know? I mean, everyone was, like, by that time, everyone was making Gusta Pablo kind of riffs. Everyone got a melodica, became, become a bit like, you know, and I just got a bit bored of it, I suppose. And I thought, you know, let me just try a little twist. Got to become... But to be honest, if you listen to Money Run Things, Money Run Things is, dig- is the same way. It's It's digital. So I've always been influenced by that, the, the minor key ones. And also you, you were like renting your studio out and working with lots of other people, I guess. Yeah, well, well, I had to really because, as you know, putting out music doesn't really bring big benefits in terms of record sales. So, so for me to, to pay the rent, and not only that, I had to pay the rent on that, plus I had to pay the rent on my house where I lived, plus give my, my missus money, you know what I mean, kids money. Everything costs money, so this is what I did it. That's why... I, Ideally, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have liked to hire that studio to anybody. I just wanted it for myself. But I knew that financially, to get my head above water, I would have to make tunes of other people and mix tunes for other people and voice other people. But you know, yeah, that's, that's it really. Just the way to survive. And that's still what you're doing now, obviously. Yeah, basically, it's all hand to mouth. I think if you're if you're a musician and you rely ultimately on only money, making money from music, it's going to be a struggle. And how, how has it changed in the studio with like clientele and the people you work with? It's like, are, are there more people from further afield working with you now? Oh, much more further afield. Now, now we've got the internet. I mix, I mix tunes for people all over the world, from Brazil to France to Germany. You know what I mean? All over the world, people say, and the good thing is they can just send it onto WeTransfer. All the tracks are separated. I just import them into the computer and, and mix away. And before, people would have to come in the studio, I guess. Yeah, well, before that, yeah, was when we had tape machines. They didn't have the option. They had to bring the tape. And you have to have the right tape machine as well. It ain't like today where you can just give a, give a guy a file with like 16 tracks on it, all separated, all start at the beginning, all nice and clean and perfectly, you know what I mean? You know, mixing nowadays is a lot easier to mix than it was back in them days. And would you have any advice to people who wanted to do this kind of thing? Because obviously, you know, you've been doing it a long time. You're still doing it now. Records still coming out. People still loving the old stuff. It's like... My advice, really, get a proper job and do music at the weekends. Do music at the weekends. And if the music you're doing at the weekends suddenly starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger and you're actually earning some money from it, then take the leap. You know what I mean? But... It's really hard, mate. I'm not going to lie to you. Music business is hard. But you managed to keep it going and still be busy doing stuff. Well, that's, that's like I say, because we've got a good track record. And, we, and we're one of the originals, you know. We're one of the, the old original UK dubs kind of stuff. You know what I mean? So people are always... We're a bit like the Rolling Stones, isn't it? They just keep churning them out because of <laughs> your history kind of thing. Rolling Stones. You know what I mean? Like I think that's why we'll always get a show because they... Yeah, because they say, oh, a bit of nostalgia. But to be fair... When I do play, I very rarely play any music that I've done in the 90s because I've heard it a million times. But I suppose I've always got that option. In years to come, I can do like a nostalgia tour, just play 90s or whatever. And I see there's a big thing for 90s right now, to be honest, in the scene. But you seem to still do kind of fresh stuff. It's like when you were doing the um, um, the, the, that track with Papa Jim, the Kraftwerk track and kind of those kind of things. It's sort of... You know, like using a bit of like pop music kind of thing, but but turning it into like a roots reggae. Thing. Yeah, well, I always loved that track. I mean, how can you not like Kraftwerk, the model? That tune is, is a fantastic tune. You know, I, I remember listening to that in school. That came out what, in, in the 1970s, and it's just got that classic riff. It's just great. How can you not like that? You know what I mean? But you're not scared of like of using some of those influences because you've done it a few times with tracks, haven't you? Kind of. Yeah. Well, I just, yeah, basically, I mean, I'm obviously a bit scared in case I get sued by Kraftwerk, but unless you're selling millions of copies, I don't think they'll even bother. Remember, to sue somebody, you've got to sue them for money, and if you haven't got any money, they're not going to sue you. That's true. And the thing is, when I did the publishing for it, I always put down Kraftwerk and King General, so I never really claimed any publishing money off it, so in that respect, I'm not really nicking anything, you know what I mean? I'm doing them a favour, really. And what about... Um trying to keep for, sort of fresh and inspired and stuff when, when you're making music for that long if you mean by trying to be fresh and trying to keep up with what the young kids are doing I find that's kind of hard because I think what the young kids are doing now is even more minimal than what we was doing instead of it going kind of forward and progressing on what we did and doing something, something new or it's just gone back to the common basics of even less 
if you know what I mean, less musically in tune. I think people that make music now, especially young people, don't really, didn't really learn how to play chords. You see what I mean? They didn't have to. I think a lot of it is, is it's so, sound systems are such a big thing now, so making music that's only for that. Whereas before, a tune would have to play on a sound, but you'd, people would, you'd want people to play it at home as well. Sound systems right now are, are more bigger than the artists. I mean, back in the day when we started, like the Bush Chemist or Century or Vibronics or Disciples, they were the, the name brands, you see what I mean, as opposed to the sound systems. But gradually over time, the sound systems really have gone to the top. And the name brand, like the, just the band ones, sort of gone underneath them now, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. It's like they've definitely become... Um, yeah, and more people at the sessions, and 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 because they're hosting artists, and it's like they've become kind of like a like a club brand kind of thing. It's like a you know like like Ministry of Sound used to be back in the day, or you know that 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 kind of thing. There seems to be more of that sort of vibe, I'd say. But it's just evolution, isn't it? I suppose. I remember when you go to the shows in, like you say, in France, and that most of the people they're all teenagers. They're like nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, and I remember I'm I'm fifty-six. So it's, it's, you know, you don't realise it. You know, what I mean, you, you know, these young people still come to see it. So it's, it's still great, but they're going to have their own influences, and they're going to start making music how they see it is, and they're going to be the same as us. So what what can we expect like, to see or hear from you in the future if we ever get out of this virus situation? I mean, have you have you got more stuff coming out? I've always got stuff coming out. I'm always working on it. I've got a single blue LP coming out. I did. A, I've been doing a, a like about four or five tracks with single blue. And yeah, he's coming back, man. And the thing is, I love Singer Blue's voice. He's got such a unique voice. And what else? I've, you, you can't get that in Europe. You can voice as many of these European artists as you like, or English artists, but they don't have that Jamaican sound. And always, one thing I always loved, it's just something about it. And I just love that style. And he, he's great. Well, that tune, If A No Jar, that I re- remixed of yours, that he voiced, I get asked for that more than almost any track. And again, that's one of those kind of pop things because you lifted that that Dre beat off it. Did that's how that one happened? You know what? The Dre beat come after. It was really funny because I made the tune in a kind of hippie hoppy style, and we were just playing about with the keyboard, and that just come along. And I thought, you know what? That sounds like that Doctor Dre tune. But I tell you what, that tune got me more recognition than any other tune I've ever done. That tune got put on a compilation LP put out by Soul Jazz. Uh, I can't remember what the LP was called now, but on that LP, they had King Jammies, they had, oh, who else? A couple of big producers from, from New York, some from Jamaica, and there was my tune on it as well, Bosch. It also got picked up for BBC for a comedy sh- uh, series called My New Best Friend, and they took the track and used it in, in the background for, a, for this music series. So we got a, good, got a good lot of money out of that as well, so it was really good. Finally, some recognition. At the time, I thought it was like Dr. Dre's tune, but then I found out that Dr. Dre nicked it as well. Yeah, exactly. It's a sample from wherever. So yeah, I, I never knew that at the time. I was just, I just like obviously knew Dr. Dre through Eminem and all that because my kids used to love Eminem, and they used to play Dr. Dre as well. And I thought that tune, dunk, 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 dunk. I thought it Dr. Dre made it, but then a couple of years later, someone played me this other tune. I said, "Fucking hell!" I said, "That sounds like a Dr. Dre tune." He goes, "Yeah, that's where he nicked it from." So I thought, "Flipping heck." All these years I thought I nicked Dr. Dre, but I really was nicking somebody else. So there you go. And working with singers seems to be, I mean, I've recorded some tracks at yours. I recorded with Michael Prophet and Trilla Jenner and a few, a few people at yours. And it's like, it's like you seem to have the knack of working with singers. And you, you, I guess that's something you still enjoy doing. Definitely. I like to give my input. You know what I mean? If I hear something that's shit, then I'm going to say, look, mate, do that again. Because some people don't, they just let it go and. But I try not to, but sometimes you piss singers off. They say, oh, I don't like that bit. Oh, it's the best bit. So no, I might do that again or whatever. But I'm pretty, I'm pretty lenient. I'm not, I wouldn't shout at them, but I would explain myself. And often enough, I always, I even try and sing the song to them. Or if they're off key or something like that, I would try and sing in key and tell them how I, how I wanted the song to go. Or if I've got a chorus, you know what I mean? I'll sing the chorus and then make them sing it back. So yeah, I, I, I like doing that. I enjoy doing that, definitely. Well, I, I always loved the um, the album cover with Danny Red, where you're you're in the vocal booth and he's on the mixing desk. That was actually Danny's idea. You know, Danny's a very talented. When it comes to writing songs, Danny's probably one of the best ones out there. His lyrics—they're not just the same old lyrics here every day in root tunes. His lyrics always got a little twist to them, or a story, or just something that's 
unique, you know, just just good. Great songwriter, Danny Red. Yeah, well, he's coming out on the podcast. He'll probably come out before this recording does, but, like, very interesting interview, definitely. Now, Danny's, like I say, Danny, again, he comes from that time. He's Jamaican. He has that Jamaican voice about him, Jamaican attitude, and you can hear that in the music he does, you know. That's why people like him, because he has that sound, and his lyrics are really good, and sometimes very comical as well. Okay, Doug, well... It's coming to the end of the interview, really. It's been interesting to kind of learn about kind of where it's all coming from. Um, but what, what I'm doing is I'm asking everybody at the end of the interview as well. It's like I'm writing the book of dub and I'm writing everyone's name in it. So I'm going to write Dougie Conscious Sounds or whatever we agree on to be the name. And what, what would you want written next to it as something you want kind of associated with your name? You could put Dub Trier. Dub Trier. Always try. That's, that, that is my thing. I've never give up. I always try to do something and get it across. I mean, I, I, I just still love mixing dub. It's just playing around with effects and stuff. I love, I love mixing dub as well. Mixing is my, my favourite thing. I love mixing. Especially just going... You just, you just feel like a scientist. That's all I ever wanted to do when I first started. I wanted to be like scientists with a touch of Lee Perry and a bit of King Tubbies. That was all I wanted to do. As soon as I saw that four-track mixing desk that the Molasser had... And it started echoing the drums and taking them out. I thought, flipping heck, man, that's scientist. And that's it. That's all I wanted to do was be like that. I wasn't really bothered about playing the music. I just wanted to mix it. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it's just something that I, I, I never tire of. And now, like, my, my studio's all the way across town and we're, everyone's locked in their houses. It's like... It's good to have a rest. Clear your mind. When you go back to it, you like it even that's more. One. That sounds good. Okay, Doug, well, thanks a lot for your time. So... Thanks for being on the podcast. No worries, Steve. Nice to talk to you. Thanks again for joining me and Dougie for this 13th episode of the Life in Dub podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to Life in Dub wherever you pick up your podcasts and help promote it wherever you can. If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, as usual, just send me an email, vibronics at gmail.com or find me on the social media messages. As ever, you can visit the website, lifeindub.com, and don't forget to check out those t-shirts. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.